Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Let's start the podcast. Hey, show a little enthusiasm. <sighs> you again. How often do you get to talk to me? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, I just want to finally confront you about your uh, habitual pants shitting. Okay. Confront you. You're a pants shitter and admit it. I'm going to clap back at you for that. <laughs> I'm well, proud how of are my- you? How how are you? Seriously, I mean, see, this is what's fun about this podcast is that I get to talk to people that I know and love and have known for a million years and then just like ask them prying personal questions that I normally wouldn't. So wait a minute. Like, you always ask me prying personal questions. Yeah. And you always come up with a joke. You always <laughs> deflect with your comedy. Oh, so no jokes today, huh? Yeah, no, no, I no, But I mean, seriously, how are you holding up? During this, stuff. I am doing okay. I would say if it's all relative, but if you look at my family unit, uh, my wife is built for this because uh, my wife comes from this uh, breed of sort of Welsh, Scotch, English, waspy people that just want to stay at home anyway. And uh, I've always joked that they're hobbits because they're very content to like make granola look out the window. Um, they're, they're wonderful people, great people. Uh, but they're the last thing they want to do is get on a plane and go somewhere or rush around. And both my kids, uh, 14 and 16 are very good at living online and very sort of built for this. There's, I think there's a generation that's kind of built for, they game with their friends. They're really smart about taking their online classes. They know how to upload their homework. I mean, it's just, they've been preparing for this somehow. And then I'm the one that's having trouble, as you can imagine, because you've known me for years and I'm uh, hyperkinetic. I'm always moving. I need to constantly be physically putting my hands on people. Uh, That's a problem. No, I know. I know. I know. But Biden told me it was fine. Right. Uh, No, I like I grew up uh, in family of six. And so the boys in the family were constantly and constantly wrestling. And I just never got over that part. Like, as you know, I'm always wrestling our head writer or or uh, I just need to physically touch a lot of the writers. I don't touch the women. I'll make that very clear because I've asked them if it's okay, And they've said no. Right. Um, and then, uh, but they, they didn't really say no, they yelled, no, 
They yelp no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they bang but symbols so, together to yeah. scare you away. Yeah. Like, and uh but I don't know, I'm very uh so and of course I invented this whole other job for myself, which is traveling the world and jumping on planes and going places and jumping into crowds of people. That's always been uh the essence of I think what made me happy. So everyone stay inside and don't move much yeah. and stay away from other people has been frustrating for me. Um, but, do, you, uh, do you miss the studio audience? Cause I know I, I feel like you get a charge out of that. I do. I think I, it's funny because I think, uh, I think I've noticed this is something that uh, you and I are very different we have similarities and then we're very different in some ways. I get something from an audience. Uh, I get a charge and you're always in a good way. I think uninfluenced by meaning if a crowd is terrible, uh, I think I lose some of my energy. And if a crowd's really great, I get energy. And I think I've noticed that your strength of yours is that, when a crowd isn't giving you what you want, you're still yourself and you're very comfortable with your own rhythm and knowing what to do. And I think I've gotten better at it over the years, but I used to live or die by the crowd. And you would say like, well, what do they have to do with it? We're making a funny show. And well, and especially it's the studio, the studio audience is just a soundtrack that we actually can, can manipulate. Whereas it's the people at home watching the show that are their yes. true audience. But I, I used to get, I used to get my, I mean, I used, I used to get my feelings hurt. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, yeah. I would, I would, I, I'm very uh, thin skinned and I'm very uh, influenced by, uh, you know, if, if one random person says you suck, you know, if a million people tell me I'm great and one person says you suck, I'll obviously think about the person who said you suck for months afterwards and wonder, why would my father say that? There we go. There's your joke. <laughs> well, that's a common uh, that's a common malady, though. I mean, I think yeah. it's like, you know, because I definitely notice that in in our studio audience, if there's one person sitting with their arms crossed and like without smiling and just kind of like right, the right. person that looks like the, you know, the dad that was dragged to this thing and never thought much of the <gasps> show. And, yeah. And that's the person I see. They're, the smiling, yes. happy faces enjoying themselves are like a, a visual white noise. But the only thing I see is the person having a bad time. And I and it's not like that they panic me. I just am like, fuck you, motherfucker. Like what? Just at least. But it's when you. But it's when it, you, you know. But it's when you say that. And I know. We're rolling. I know. That's the problem. I then know. You, but you know. It's uh, just, but no. That, but I. I uh, I've gotten a lot better. I mean, you've. You know, we've we we've met. You and I in uh, you know like May or June of it might have been May of ninety three, mm-hmm. and so we've known each other a really long time. And uh, you've been there for just a lot of you've been in the nose cone with me watching stuff happen. And so uh, you've seen what my real uh, I don't know how vulnerable I can be in front of people if I think they're not 
getting what they want or if the customer's not happy. And I've gotten much better at that. I would say I don't miss our studio audience as much as I miss. I love a theater crowd. And oh, just, yeah. bef- just before um, this whole thing happened, uh, Judd Apatow asked me to uh, join him and Adam Sandler and Eric Idle and a couple of other people to do something uh, at um, Largo. Of course, uh, Largo. Yeah. And I did it. And, you know, Largo is, they have such sweet crowds at Largo. They're yeah. just the best crowds in the world. They're so smart. They're so generous. They're so great. And so I came out and I was a surprise. And it was really, I had so much fun. And I do feel like if there are times where I feel like if I had, uh, you know, an infection or if I had a cancer, and I went in front of a crowd like that, there'd be no sign of it afterwards. Like it would, <laughs> the, me- the disease would be gone just because I do feel like I really do get something very positive. And I, I feel like I give something positive and I get something positive and no one gets hurt and it just feels lovely. And I have to say, that was one of my last experiences before everything shut down. And yeah, I've, uh, I do miss uh, humans and making humans I don't know laugh. I do miss that a lot. Do you think, because for me, it's different. Like, I don't, the people that I like to make laugh, and also, too, like, I didn't set out to become a uh, a live performer. I set out to be, you know, I went to film school, and I wanted to be right. in television or or movies, but not in, a, not in front of a studio audience, just, and I like, I still to this day like the feeling of being on a film crew yeah. and, and being sort of this, like, little band of people that packs things up into trucks and then shows up and plays makeup world and then leaves. Yep. 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 Um, and so, it, and when, and even in our studio, the people that I like to make, I like to make the cameramen laugh, you know, like yes. I like to make yes. the, the stagehands laugh. And when I hear them laugh, that's like the most rewarding thing for me. And I think, and that is a difference between us. And I want, like, I wonder because you were in such a big family, and because you are, I mean, you joke about being the middle kid and, and like needing attention. But do you think that that is like a serious kind of result of, of that kind of dynamic? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, Freud says there are no jokes. Uh, He's a bummer. Uh, he, was, he was really no fun. You know, yeah. he, Freud used to go to comedy clubs. This is true. <laughs> and comedians would be telling jokes and he'd stand up and go, there are no jokes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you want to fuck your mother. You want to fuck your mother and kill your father. He got thrown out of the laugh hut and the laugh factory. And the (laughs) (laughs) I just loved doing laugh hut. Doing laugh hut. Yeah. Uh, The laugh hut. But um, the chuckle bond. The chuckle bunker. I I was. I mean, I've been joking about it for so many years that it can just feel uh, uh, trite, but I do believe that um, growing up in a big family and, you know, the Irish Catholic cliche, but it's true. I, my my parents had a child a year for, you know, like six years. I mean, there's some little gaps here and there, but really, uh, I think they had four kids under four. Under five at one That's point, madness. which is which is madness. That's just absolute craziness. Well, it's just you know it's so funny, but if you look around, 
other families I knew growing up, other Irish Catholic families and cousins, they all did the same thing. There were like nine kids in this family and seven kids in that family. And we had six and it was just it's it's what we did. And it was uh, it was the time Uh, people people, uh, I think. I don't know if it was overtly because the Pope didn't want people using condoms or yeah, what. Yeah, that's what I was just... going to say, because I'm not Catholic. Did, was it really a religious thing or is it just a cultural I, thing? Well, or... my my parents are religious, but I really do think my mom also told me when I was young, I said, how come there were so many of us? And she said, I just always wanted to have a lot of kids. So I, I, I do think that she wanted to have uh, a lot of kids, a lot of children. So but what happened was I just remembered there was so much. Uh, when I look at like a bunch of puppies and they're all climbing over each other, you know, sometimes you'll see video of, or you'll see a bunch of puppies in a pen and they're literally crawling each other. And one of them is sleeping in the water dish and they're tumbling and there's one jammed under three others. I feel like, Oh yeah, I kind of know what that's like. Yeah. That kind of looks familiar. Uh, I think what, uh, what, what it did is it made me, I think there was a lot of my youth, where I didn't know who I was. I remember thinking very clearly, I don't have a personality. Like my brother, Neil, the oldest. Like at what age? Uh, this would be in my 40s. No, this would be, uh, <laughs> this would be, this would be very strongly. I think I felt that way from like nine till like 16. I remember just, there's like a bunch of years in there where I think, well, I don't know what it is I contribute because my oldest brother, was really big and physically strong and also uh, incredibly mechanical and knew how to fix cars and just was off doing his thing. And he had a very clear thing. And then my brother Luke is to this day, one of the smartest people I've ever met and kind of a Renaissance man and was, um, knew everything about sports, but also knew how to make a creme brulee, but also Mm -hmm. knew how to, I mean, just knew everything, but also had read, you know, uh, Dante. I mean, just. And, he's, a, and, he's a dick. Let's just say. <laughs> yeah. No, he is. He is. And also saintly, like an incredibly nice guy. And yeah. very I moral, to, I think. Too, I just yeah, used yeah. to feel like, yeah, very moral. And I used to just think I'm no Luke. I'm no Neil. And I just remember thinking, I don't know what it is I do. And I didn't like. Uh, I didn't like the way I looked. I didn't like having, I had orangish hair and freckles and I remembered hating that. And I had a weird name and I just thought the whole thing was, I remember thinking, I wish I looked like Hogan on Hogan's Heroes. I wish I just had black hair and was sort of good looking in that generic way. And I wish, I don't know. And I didn't have, who has freckles? What an embarrassment. And I'm not good at sports. So there's, there was a lot of not knowing and looking and trying to figure it out. Yeah. And then slowly and living, in, living in reaction to the people around you, too. Yes. You yeah. know what I mean? You know, because you couldn't be. Even if you because I know that, you know, my ex-wife was from a big family and I think there the, there were four girls and it was kind of like, I can't do that because that's my sister's thing. Yeah. E- even if they had an, uh, you know, like an inclination towards a thing, it'd be like, so, no, that's her thing. This is a true story. Uh, my um, I love when people say that as if everything else I've said is a sociopathic. Lie, right. right. But, I, but, know, uh, I know. I mean, there's but, a bit, I'm going to put a big d- disclaimer on this. <laughs> 
get ready the, for the horse shit. <laughs> he's the Ted Bundy of comedy. <laughs> I'm a good guy. Yeah. Uh, I wear a turtleneck and I just want to go on a date. Yep. Um, but uh, I, the thing that I remember very clearly, it's so ridiculous to think about it now. Uh, but because I grew up, I came of age in the 70s. And so I should have been watching like, Movies like The French Connection and listening to punk rock and all that. Instead, for, for some reason, because I was in such a bubble, uh, the movie That's Entertainment came out. Oh, yeah. And, and it was this MGM. Uh, it was a collection of all the greatest MGM song and dance routines from their best movies during their musical period. It's like a clip and show. Yeah. Clip show. Yeah. And my dad took me to see it. And I saw Donald O'Connor doing Make Him Laugh. Make him laugh, make him laugh. And he does this crazy dance routine where he's smashing into. And I saw that and I I really felt like someone had taken my hand and put it on the third rail of a New York subway. I electricity went through my body and I just was like, I, I that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I wanted to be a song and dance man and a vaudevillian. And I think to this day. I want to be a vaudevillian. I think I'm really happy in theaters. I, I love, uh, you know, packing them in the seats yeah. and giving them a great time and then giving them more than they thought they were going to get. Yeah. Uh, and I love old, um, kooky theaters. And, and, you know, even when, when you and I, you and I have done so many shows together where we do a week in Chicago, a week in Atlanta, a week yeah. at the Apollo Theater. Yeah. I'm in love with that. Yeah, I'm in, yeah. I'm on cloud nine. I love backstages. I love, and I think uh, all of those things led me to sort of, that's the kind of show business I wanted to be in. And I think I willed myself. I mean, I was a writer producer on The Simpsons and people were really happy with me there. And there was a feeling, I remember my agent at the time saying, Hey, you could stay here and you could run the Simpsons and this thing's going to go on forever. And it's the most respected. And I was like, I got to get out of here. Yeah. Cause I'm in a lab, I'm in a comedy lab and it's the funniest group of writers I may ever work with. But guess what? I'm got, I I'm sitting in a room. I mean, people have said to me over the years, Oh, you must've loved the Simpsons. I'm like, no, I loved what we made, and I had such respect and have such respect for those writers and for that, what that, but it wasn't my creation. And also, it didn't involve, it involved me sitting still and just using my brain. Yeah. It was like, I can't, do, I can't Although, stay here or I'll die. Everybody, everybody that worked with you there talks about how you were, it was the Conan show in the room every day. Yeah. But, yeah. And I can yeah. totally, I mean, having, you know, having been your TV wife for all these years. Uh, yeah, I know like you can't, you don't stop. No. And it's funny because, uh, you know, when we did the tour after the tonight show craziness and we did that, you and I did that tour and, and it was such a traumatic slash great. It was a combination. It was a combo platter of so many things. It was, uh, uh, and Rodman Flender made this documentary about it. And for a long time, he was putting it together long after the tour ended. And I said, what are you going to call this thing? And he went, oh, I know what I'm going to call it. I'm not going to tell you yet. And then finally he's, he came out and it was called Conan O'Brien Can't Stop. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And he went, yeah, it's a documentary about addiction and you're the addict. And I was like, oh, 
okay. And I don't think he's wrong. I think he's no. right in that there was some, and you can see in the documentary, which I won't watch any, but, but he did a very good job. Have you never jo- seen it? I wa- no, I watched it when it came out. Yeah. And then I, I haven't wanted to look back at it because it's just a time I, I, I don't want to go back to. And yeah. I think I will look at it again, but I think more time needs to go by. It's only been a decade. Yeah. But uh, I think it'd be good to watch it with your kids when they're older. You know what I yeah. mean? But I think one of the things that's interesting is this this dynamic of I remember very clearly there was a moment when uh, when I was over just being pulled in so many directions. And I just said to my wife they keep making me do this and they keep making me do that. And she said, there is no they, it's you. And it's really, I mean, powerful, but she was just, she wasn't saying it in a mean way. She was just saying, you're enabling all of it. You're saying yes to everything. And when someone doesn't, (laughs) when something isn't scheduled, you wonder why there's a hole in the schedule. And then you complain about it. And I was like, oh, that's sick. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we we get. We get. Uh, I don't know. We get. Well, I, you, I always, uh, you, you learn to, you, uh, you know, I and I think you've done a very good job of this where you take your neurosis. I mean, if you if you. Well, A, you're a very complicated person. You're not, you know, you are in no way a simple person. And you have taken what one could very easily call neuroses and kind of turned it into a helpful bacteria, a beneficial bacteria that Mm -hmm. in some way I think could be, you know, left in some some unexamined way. It could be very toxic, but I think that you've sort of like gotten a handle on it. You learn like, what you need. And while some of the need might be, you know, it might be a little bit more than what you like, you know, yeah, like, yeah. you know, yeah. that you, I think that you do though, kind of, you do have a sense of perspective, you know, and it well, does, you, seem, know you know, you're three years older than me, but it does seem like it takes this long. It does. Yeah. To kind of figure out, Oh yeah, right. No, this is what I need. And this is what I don't need. And, you know, and to calm down about stuff. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you, we ha- we are in this culture that uh, really fears. Um, it really fears age. It really fears people getting old. Or it's it's cool to be young, and you know, people get disparaged for being. Uh, you know, if you've been around the planet too long, you can be disparaged, and. As I get older, I have more and more. I'm just I'm happier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just happier the older I get, and um, uh, I think that there's something. I always think about erosion. Like you know, we think about erosion as a bad thing, but it's not always a bad thing. It it smooths surfaces, you know, and uh, it. It it makes things erosion eventually. I mean, yeah, too much erosion and you lose your backyard, but it also makes things uh, softer and more gentle and uh, mountains are easier to climb and more pretty because of erosion. And I think, yeah, it's just been uh, I'm 57 and I've had I've had all these years of erosion. And I look at you and I both experience this, but, you know, our digital team is constantly putting stuff up and I love, it's great. It's great. They've gone back and they've digitally 
uh, enhanced all of the catalog of our stuff starting from 93 and they'll just post stuff. And it's, so I'll wake up in the morning and I'll just turn on my phone and suddenly it'll be me doing a bit with you and some actors from 1993. Oh yeah. You know, where you're throwing a drink in my face and uh, you know, uh, we're, we're, it's sort of like that soap opera parody we used to do, but yeah. we would shoot it, we would shoot it film style. And I'm looking at that guy and I'm thinking, you don't know anything. You don't know anything. I, I'm like, I have affection for him because yeah. I think his heart's in the right place and I can see what that guy wants to try and do. But I think, oh, you just, you just need to be whack-a-mold for about 15 years yeah. and you'll get better. And yeah. uh, so that's, I mean. And figure out what's important and what's not important. And Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, now let's go back to when you were a kid. And you find out this identity. What 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 do you do with it? Like you like you said, like when you get into sort of like 14 ish, 15 ish. Well, I've always said um, uh, I've always said. I think it's true that you you kind of I think we all do this. It, it's evolution. It's Darwinism. But you click through. What are the, what's the hand you've been dealt and yeah. so you know, when you look at someone who's been dealt a hand, they're taking all of their cards that really aren't worth anything and they're shuffling them around and putting them off to the side and discarding them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And they're, and they're focusing on the good cards they have. And so I imagine that I was dealt this hand and I could see all the things that were like, well, athlete, no, <laughs> uh, you know, um, uh, I, I get credited a lot. I'll read these things that talk about how I was like a brilliant student because people know I went to Harvard and I'll think, Oh my God, I spent years and years feeling stupid. And I was very phobic about math. And my brother Luke, who's just a year older than me is a genius at math. And so I decided I was terrible about math. And so I struggled a lot in math and felt stupid and felt slow. And so I just kept, saying, I don't have this, I don't have that, I don't have that, I don't have this. And then I could make people laugh. And I knew that from about third grade. And then I noticed I'm doing it with my friends, but I start writing. I really did this in starting in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. I would write plays and put them on for my, uh, and they would let me use the theater for a bit. And then I I would get in theater. Use the theater at school, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I would... And uh, is this public school? You went to yeah. public school, right? Yeah. 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 And in, uh, in Brooklyn. why didn't they send you to Catholic school? Just out of curiosity. I've never thought to ask you that. Uh, well, money. Uh, oh, okay. I'm sure. <laughs> okay. They, uh, yeah, that's the other thing, too, is my my um, my mom didn't go back to work for a long time. And my dad's a brilliant guy. He's in academic medicine, but it's not like he was. Yeah. You don't like make he had money this... doing that. Yeah. And yeah. so and there's a lot of us. So. uh we, and, and Brookline has a really good school system. So my parents were interested, like, yeah, this is great. You know, Brookline, yeah, yeah. Massachusetts is a great public school system. So that was a no brainer that we all go to public yeah. school. And uh, but the, and they let you lo- use this theater in that, you know, that's. Pretty yeah, they great. let me use the theater and they let me, uh, um, you know, uh, and I, it's funny because I wrote one of the plays 
and with my friend Jake Fleischer. And we, we cast our, you know, we, we were, we wrote it for ourselves, this sort of musical kind of fun romp that the two of us would do about two guys making it to the top of the business, like literally straight out of the thirties. And we wrote this play. And of course we wrote it like in 1974, 75, Mm -hmm. which is ridiculous. But then we put it on, we convinced the school to let us put it on and they did. Uh, and all the kids were happy because they, they let the kids out of class for half an hour, whatever it was, to watch our ridiculous play. And um, so on my last tour that I did, which was just stand-up with some other stand-ups, uh, a guy stood up in the middle row, I think when I was in Seattle, and said, I have something for you, Mr. O'Brien. You might find of interest. And I was like, who is this? It yeah, looked like I was getting a subpoena. you? Yeah. Uh, and it, I'm looking at the guy and I think, I think I know him. It's Jake Fleischer. Oh, wow. And he's got the play we wrote together and he handed it to me and I have a copy of it. And, uh, it's written in my handwriting on that carbon paper that you put through a video. I mean, a oh, mimeograph yeah. machine. Mimeograph like a ditto, paper. A, yeah. Ditto paper. Something that yeah. anyone listening to this right now has no idea you're, what you're talking about. Has no idea what we're talking about, but that's how you used to make copies of things. Yeah. And, uh, Carbon paper. Carbon paper. Yeah, yeah. And so, anyway, uh, that was... So you were doing... Were you now... And I was you, zeroing in. I was zeroing in on, yeah, I like this. I yeah. like this. This I can do. And then at some point, I want to say fifth, sixth grade, I decided this... You can't be in entertainment. I don't know anybody in entertainment. That's silly. Be grind it out be a great student uh i'm natural i was naturally good at uh english creative writing stuff like that so science and math make it happen yeah and i bec- that's when i really became like uh um i am going to if i'm going to make and it's so ironic because i thought i'm i'll never make it in entertainment because i don't know anyone from entertainment and that's just seems like a fantasy and a silly fantasy right. so and Buckle also, down. You, also, you want to be Donald O'Connor in the in the mid seventies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. When there's no need for Donald O'Connor anymore, and people yeah. want people are like, it would make more sense if I wanted to be one of the Ramones. Yeah, and, inst- and instead, I'm like those ruffians. <laughs> you know, I want to be in vaudeville. So, yeah. uh, so I buckled down, and I was a grind. And it's not pretty to admit, but I was an incredible grind. I worked really hard through grade school and through high school. And then also I could get into this really great college. And what do I do when I get into the great college? I stumble onto their humor magazine and get, it's like the line uh, Pacino has in the third Godfather. I get sucked right back in <laughs> and, and getting on the lampoon at Harvard totally chain, you know, like I did my, gr- where was the grind leading? I thought the grind was leading to me being, like an author or statesman. I'm not even kidding. Like I go to the Kennedy school. I, I, or I be, you know, and I go to law school and I get legitimate credentials and I become a man of a great affairs, whatever that means, you know, uh, a man of letters or a, a, a guy. I mean, I didn't know. I didn't yeah. have, I had uh, a very murky sense of what it would all be, but was my ego telling me, no, you've got to do something big. 
and it needs to be in this legitimate arena. So I ended up getting to go to this school that's like, you know, Harvard is the, this will, this will prove to everybody that I've made it and that I'm legitimate. And then the first thing I do when I get there is get sucked into the comedy magazine. And, uh, you know, was still a good student. It's not like I. Yeah, but hit the, uh, there again, you didn't get sucked in. You no, I you, didn't get sucked in. I, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I entered in. But the minute I made contact with that place, it was, oh, my God, where is this? This has been. Yeah. Where has this been all my life? And you know what it's like when you're when I got on, I would have been 18. When you're 18. Yeah. And the place is run by 21 and 22 year olds. They are adults to you. Yeah. The chasm between 18, a, a freshman and a senior. And those seniors were saying, hey. Conan. You're really funny. And I was I was blown away. Yeah. I was just like head over heels in love with the building, the people, the yeah. history, uh, writing stuff all day, making really funny people laugh and have them think I was funny. And I, that's when I was hooked. Yeah. And for me, that was, that was improv. That was when yeah. I got into improv. It was, I was a little older, you know, 23, 24, but it was, it was the same thing. It was like, Oh Christ, this is why, I've been sort of, I mean, you know, brain chemistry is one reason, but this is a kind of a, re- a reason that I felt kind of shitty for a long time is because I wasn't around these people. Right. I wasn't around these like funny, here they are. Here are the people I should have been with the whole time. Yeah, it is. Uh, I don't know. It's all Wizard of Oz sort of. You're on this. It's the cliche, but it's so many, so many great tropes and so many great films, but you, p- people want a journey meeting their friends along the way yeah. and finding them. And, yep. uh, and, and, and it can be Robin hood and it can be Lord of the Rings and it can be like, but you find your people on the road you pick them up and then you become this, uh, merry band. Yeah. And that's what, that's what I dreamed about. Uh, and that's essentially, uh, where it sort of started. And, when does that become, I mean, is it the performing for them, just making them laugh, <clears throat> excuse me, making them laugh around the, that, that building, which is like also too, it's crazy that it's got a fancy old building. You know, what it's I not mean? just, it's not just a fancy old building. It's, I mean, it's one of the things that uh, I'm sure makes people hate the Lampoon or Harvard in general, but um, it really is magical. It's Hogwarts. It's the Hogwarts. Yeah. It's like a Hogwarts for comedy. Uh, it is. The story is that most, if, if a college is lucky enough to have a humor magazine, they all have to meet in some closet off the cafeteria, you know, uh, or an old rec room or some, some horrible space. And then, of course, uh, in 1876, it's the oldest humor magazine in America. Uh, in 1876, they start the Lampoon at Harvard. And uh, just to put that in perspective, that's the year Custer is defeated <laughs> at Little Bighorn. <laughs> So these guys with like wax mustaches, um, uh, you know, dating women in hoop skirts right. who, are, who bathe know, every two weeks. Exactly. Yeah. They're uh, they start a humor magazine in 1876. And 
at one point, I think in the 1880s or 90s or whatever, they they let uh, a young man gets on. There's two ways to get on the lampoon. One is, well, three ways, actually. One is um, there's the literary board, which means you're either a writer, which I was, or a cartoonist, which I was. I did that badly, but I was sort of a writer, but I also did cartoons. And then there's the business board, which means you sell ads. And and so there's a there's a business component to it. And they let a guy on the business board whose name is William Randolph Hearst. <laughs> and so he gets on, has a good time, and then he leaves. And shortly after he leaves, he says, you know, it'd be nice if we had a building of our own to congregate in. And they went, well, that would be nice. And oh, he sure said, would. And he says, I'm thinking of a miniature Flemish castle that has architectural tricks and illusions in it. And I'm also thinking it should be filled, covered on the inside with Delft tile that's, uh, <laughs> oh, and that's been shipped in from right. my private collection. Yes. So of For course, future generations to puke on. Yeah, exactly. So that's, so you can imagine I was a rube. I mean, um, I never drank. I grew up in a dry house. I never drank uh, or did drugs. I never took a, I never had a sip of alcohol all four years of college. And I'm quickly running an institution that's famously filled with alcoholics. And it's like my job to help get the liquor in there. And it's sort of like I'm running Animal House, but it's yeah. not Animal House. It's the, the people are really brilliant. I mean, yeah. some of the some of the people there are just absolutely brilliant, funny uh, minds and great artists, but they getting some of them are just seriously getting destroyed whenever we would have a party. And I'm always stepping over them to go answer the door. And mm -hmm. it's the Cam it's the Cambridge police because someone's called them. And I'm always like, hey, guys, and I'm totally, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I've been I've been drinking Coca-Cola out of a flagon all night. But uh, but <laughs> do, yeah, that do, do people yeah. live there? Like, do, can you? I, a I, I, there? I no, you can't live there. You're not supposed to live there. I lived there. I so became and I so fell in love with the place that uh, I get elected onto the lampoon as a first semester freshman, which was kind of unusual. And then I just decide this is it. I'm, I'm throwing in, I'm putting everything into this. Everything I have is going into this place and this idea. So I ended up pretty much living there the first summer. Yeah. Cause I, I helped, they did a Newsweek parody and I was not, I was too young to be selected for the staff, but I just said, that's okay. Don't mind me. And uh, I um, you stayed there all summer. I stayed there all summer. Did you sleep and at your parents house and like commute? I would, I would go back and forth. Yeah. I would like. Uh, but yeah, it was I, I mean, I slept there many nights on the couch in the president's office. And there's a, a red couch that might still be there. Uh, and it was surreal. You'd wake up, you'd, you'd wake up in the night and you're in a Flemish castle on on Mount Auburn Street. Uh, and you know, school is out for the summer. And I, I mean, it was very strange. And yeah. the place is filled with gargoyles and weird posters from 1922. Uh, and, um, you know, John Updike, what had all these great people, like you, you'll pass a drawing and it's like, oh, that's by John Updike or 
or um, George Plimpton or, um, you know. uh, Soupy Sales? Soupy Sales. Yeah. Damn it. I wish it was Soupy (laughs) Sales. Can't you tell my love's a growing? You get into this milieu, if you will, and you know, like, okay, this is somewhere in here is going to be what my life is. Um, At what point does that become overtly about performing? I would say it didn't. I really liked performing, and I was always the writer that made other writers laugh. Like, I was the performing writer. I always say I was the Maury Amsterdam, if you know the Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah. Like... The guy who you think could be on the show, but he's in the writer's room. And so I um, I got the bug. There was a singing group at Harvard called the Radcliffe Pitches. I'm not making any of this up. Right. And their uh, acapella group. But they said, um, hey, we're doing a big show in Sanders Theater, which is this classic old theater at Harvard beautiful space with multiple tiers. And they said, um, we need someone to MC it. You're the president of the lampoon. So do you want to do it? They just assumed I would know how to do that. And I said, yes. So it was one of those things where I said yes, without knowing what the fuck I was doing, which I yeah. built a career on. And so I said, yes. And then started writing jokes on little blue cards on index cards and trying them out on people. And then not knowing anything, I went and I found a friend of mine had like a yachting cap as a joke. So I took his yachting cap and I put on like a, a, a third rate tux that was from a, a place called Keezers, which I think is since closed. We could buy used tuxedos that like a homeless man wouldn't wear. <laughs> they and smelled got, of formaldehyde. Yeah. And I got a <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Suspiciously of formaldehyde. And I got a cigar like an asshole and walked out and told jokes. And I was petrified before I went out there. Uh, this is your first time doing anything like that. Yeah. I mean, I had been up on stage in shows and stuff like that as a, as a, as an actor in various plays, but this was my first time, like here he is Conan O'Brien. And I went out on stage and I, I did my thing and I remembered being petrified, but it went well. And recently, I want to say about two years ago, I got a package in the mail from this woman who said I was the head of the pitches and I found this cassette and I think it's that performance. I haven't listened to it cause I'm too afraid. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I'm too afraid because I just think it's going to be, I am always afraid that I'll listen to it and go like, Oh, you shouldn't be in show business. And then retroactively everything else will go away. So uh, <laughs> how, now how long did you, did you just do the top of the show or did you do in between? I go in betweens too. Yeah. 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 And I, I really liked that, but I was very also aware that like, man, this would, the, the, the safety of being a writer is it's the tension between the safety of being a writer versus, uh, but you have to then deal with the frustration of being anonymous versus the glory of being on stage versus the absolute horror of it not going well. So those forces are all fighting each other. Yeah. Now you have, I mean, you have what, I mean, to say yes to doing something like that, it's like a preternatural sort of confidence that probably I would imagine that having been in this, among this group of funny people doing this stuff, 
encouraged you to feel that confidence. And I'm wondering if it played out into other areas of your life. Like, were you confident with your schoolwork then? I mean, did you did it take away from the grind? I mean, were you confident yes. in your social life? Was it easier yeah. to talk to women? Yeah, yeah. It definitely the big revelation to me is I think before comedy, I used to think that goodness, good things could only come through pain, which is classically Catholic, but I really did believe that. That suffering, there's some Latin phrase, through tears, wisdom. Like if you really suffer, then then wisdom and uh, good things will come. Yeah. And I, I, I think to a degree, my dad encouraged that kind of thinking, which is you've really got to, um, my dad said to me once, and he's a, he's a brilliant guy and a really funny guy, but he, he told me once, if you agonize long enough, ideas will come. And I thought he used the word agonize <laughs> in a positive way. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yes, that is true. Kind of. Kind of. Well, yeah. the thing is, everything's partial. I mean, it's partially true. Yes. But, you know. At uh, what cost? Yeah. And also like Elton John wrote Rocket Man in like six minutes. Like it's great stuff can happen quickly uh, through just joy and yeah. through inspiration. So I think that's the part he was leaving out. And I think what was really nice for me is the idea that um, when I did comedy, it was the first time that uh, I didn't overthink it. I didn't. I just. I did it. It brought joy to other people. It made me happy. It brought me a certain kind of status. And I thought, wait a minute, what is this? I didn't agonize. There was no misery. Now, occasionally there is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Once you make it your profession uh, and you're either a writer at Sound Out Live or The Simpsons or whatever, you know, or or hosting a late night show when someone's attached a giant machine to it, um, it can get very complicated, but still there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of joy in the doing. And I would say, you know, the biggest revelation to me in finding comedy was that thing that it didn't have to be painful. It yeah. sometimes is, but I mean, think about um, so many of my favorite moments uh, or flashes of just great memories from all the stuff you and I have done over the years. A lot of it, I don't associate with any kind of pain. There's just, yes, there've been times where it's incredible amount of pressure and or there's but, a bit that you that took two days to edit, you know. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, and was exactly. grueling to shoot. Yeah, yeah. But I, there's so much of it was just just the laughing really yeah. hard at rehearsal. Or my favorite so, thing we do is scraps. Yeah, the shit that yeah. we're, the, the the mistakes and the stuff that we're not trying to do. That's the stuff that I feel like is the most joyous, and that's yes. kind of what you know. There, I really think there's not a lot of comedy where you're watching somebody doing the comedy and they're not enjoying themselves. Right. You know, like the, there has to be a certain level of joy, even if it's, you know, like sort of like a pathetic kind of comedy or something. It's, it's always people kind of, they know they're making people happy, you know? Right. And so there's right. like a joy to it. Yep. I, and I, I think that's 
Uh, you know, there are, there's, I think in the, in the, if you're looking for like this through line in my, if, if to really try and simplify it, it was that revelation that when I think back, I know a lot of people idolize their childhood. I don't, I remember being very anxious, mm-hmm. uh, probably should have been talking to somebody maybe should have been medicated. Um, but what do you think for what? For anxiety, ADD, anxiety. Yeah. 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 Uh, just, just anxiety, waking up in the middle of the night, really hated school, really feared it, really feared tests, really worried about failing, was obsessed with the idea of, that I would fail. And so not a, not an, my mother said much later on, yeah, you never took things easily. Like she just had this, when you've got six kids, you can kind of sum them all up. And I was the one that, that uh, took things really hard and was worried all the time. And Hmm. um, so I think comedy was this great escape from all that. And just the, the joy of, of, uh, I mean, I knew when we did Happy, Happy, Good Show, which is a stage show that I did with Robert Smigel and Bob Odenkirk uh, and a bunch of other talented people in uh, Chicago in the summer of 88, we made no money. It was in a tiny equity waiver theater. We didn't get good reviews. Uh, I had uh, my apartment. It was an incredibly hot, muggy summer in Chicago, as, as you know all too well. I had no air conditioning. And I was joyously happy. Yeah. I just was like, I would rather uh, rule in heaven than serve in hell. I just love being part of this little group of people. And I love making the opposite rule in hell than serve in heaven. Yes. That's what did I say? Well, I want to rule in heaven. I I know ruling in heaven really is the best. So that's my first choice. I didn't speak. Right. That's first. Right. But if I can't, I'll rule in hell. Right. But I'd love to rule in heaven. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'd serve a little, you know, it's, I'd switch it up, rule and serve, be versatile. Yeah, I do. I'd like make Thursdays the day that I serve. Yeah. Yeah. Just to feel good about yourself. Okay. Well, you leave, you leave, uh, you end up meeting Greg Daniels. Yep. And you guys become a pair, a writing yeah. pair. And that was really, I mean, we were, we became friends like junior, senior year. And we hung out, we hang out more and more senior year. And then we decide, I think we were both in, I mean, I knew, I think I knew more than Greg did, but I really knew I wanted to get into show business somehow. Greg, uh, what had like taken the LSAT and gotten like a perfect score. Cause he's a, you know, brilliant guy. And I think he, he was probably getting a little pressure maybe from his family, like, you know, you know, really, you're going to do you would do this. Uh, so I might be wrong about that, but I think his mother might have been somewhat skeptical. So he was getting some pressure, maybe. And I just I, I kind of think I maybe quasi talked him into come on, because I wanted to do it with someone. I was scared and Greg's funny and uh, it just felt like a no brainer. So we teamed up. Yeah. And we started applying to different shows and. Later on, when I hear how and like lucky, your senior year or or after some, out of school, we graduate, we graduate, okay. 
And then uh, there are very few options back then. It's not like today. Today, there's literally 600,000 shows being made constantly. Um, Back then, I had a rule, which Greg reminded me of recently, which is I was adamant. We don't write for sitcoms. (laughs) We don't write for sitcoms and we don't write for anything that's beneath us. Like, like, what an But I really was, and I'm still that way. I was like, I'm not going to. I used to say, uh, don't learn to pitch the ball poorly in order to someday pitch it well. Like you've, you've got to build our form now. I was very strict about that. So I said, we'll work for Saturday Night Live <laughs> or we'll work for Late Night with David Letterman, which was like in its golden era, you know, just or we'll work for a show that makes a sketch comedy where we can control our input and then there was a show called not necessarily the news and uh we knew a guy we had a connection there we submitted and we got really lucky because uh, a writer named george meyer quit just as our packet came in literally one of those things that if that hadn't happened we could have just been left in a pile somewhere on a desk Yeah. yeah so you get that first job we came out to la we worked there and, um, I mean, coming out to LA from my experience in Boston, it was like coming to the moon and, yeah, and it's lit- weird. It's really weird. Yeah. And I was scared of this place. And I thought it was, I just thought, I mean, I didn't like it here. I, when I first came out here, I just it's so thought- big and sprawling that you just don't know where to go. You know, it's like, uh, I, I mean, it, you know, it's as big as you know, two of most other cities, just in terms of the, you know. Also, I think I uh, maintain that L.A. has gotten a lot better. Yeah. I mean, L.A. now has, um, there's, people come out here, there's so much more culture, I think, out here now than there was when I came out in 85. It's, it's, it's much hipper. I think yeah. L.A. Be got, I think L.A. got a lot hipper. And and then you go to these different neighborhoods and I'm blown away. I mean, I remember going to down to, you know, I mean, uh, going to, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the place, uh, Atwater Village or some of yeah, these places. Yeah. And they weren't like this now. Yeah, they, yeah. I mean, back then they were just kind of, you know, now, you know, U- UCB wasn't out here. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it is true. It is true. It's kind of. I don't know. There's. It just seems like a, a lot of people in the time that we've been here have made L.A. more like other places rather than just kind of succumbed to L.A. Because L.A. is kind of full of shit, you know. Uh, left to its own devices was, you know, I think the, it, at least the show business part. The of show LA. business. The show business part. But then you realize. I mean. I didn't have access to, or I didn't know. And and I think it's grown a lot, but now there's just these thriving art communities and, and, and little theaters and, and people, uh, you know, crazy diversity, uh, cultural diversity. Yeah. Just, you know, and, and everyone's aware, like, you know, like I probably didn't eat Korean food till I was 30. And like my, my kids knew all about Korean food when they were seven, you know? Yeah. I, I think that's the other thing too is uh um I've always I, I learned it took me a long time to learn it, but LA has everything you need culturally, 
uh, cuisine, everything. You just have to go find it. Yeah. I mean, L.A. in New York, it's right in your face. There's the Guggenheim. There's, you know what I mean? There's the, there's uh, Lincoln Center. There is this amazing, you know, I'll go down to Soho and there are these great restaurants. Uh, I actually think L.A. has gotten, um, it's more affordable than yeah. Manhattan. Yeah. So artists Weather's can certainly st- nice. Yeah, art, artists can can live here. And uh, so there's a lot that's really very cool, I think, and has gotten a lot better about L.A., but I hated it at the time. But we came out, we got started, we got our Writers Guild cards. That sort of got us launched. Then that job went away, uh, I, I think through no fault of our own. I think they just contracted the staff. And then um, Greg taught SAT prep. I worked at Wilson's House of Suede and Leather for a little bit. And then we got a job on this show that turned out to be a cataclysmic disaster called the Wilton North Report. But I got to be on camera some. And this whole time I'm taking improv and I'm meeting people like Lisa Kudrow and I'm making all these friends and I'm doing improv and getting laughs in front of an audience and thinking, hey, okay, this, this, I like this. I like this. I don't know if I have the guts to, I'm not going to throw away the writing gigs because that's what pays the rent, but very interested in this. Yeah. And then start out, then start out live. And, you know, yeah. um, Were you and Greg hired for SNL together? Yeah. Yeah. And, and is it after SNL that you guys ended up splitting? Yeah, we went, uh, we went to SNL together, but we had also, it was interesting. We were, we were hired as two writers that worked together. So it wasn't like we split a set. We weren't a team, meaning you get one salary. We were each hired as individual writers and so we would work together on a lot of stuff, but we'd also work separately on things uh, at SNL. And then I, in this period, uh, get more and more interested in performing. I think Greg is more and more interested, obviously, in... Uh, Not performing. Yeah, and he didn't want to perform. He wasn't interested in that. And so that was just kind of natural. He left SNL to go and be with his uh, girlfriend at the time out in Los Angeles. Suzanne Lieberstein. Uh, and so he married Suzanne and, you know, they've become like the most successful, you know, she's, she's fantastic. And she has ended up, uh, having every important job you can possibly have in show business. Uh And, uh, she's really brilliant and fun. And one of the great, uh, really great laughers of all time. And, 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 you know, Greg, of course, uh, went off to make 35, uh, you know, important television shows. Yeah. Uh, and so he did that and I did, uh, I decided I'm going to strike out and, and try my thing. Uh, first I went to the Simpsons cause I was always afraid to let go of the writing thing. And I really wanted to work with those writers cause I thought that's the best writing room in America. And I want to be in there. How long had it been on when you went there? I think it had been on for three and a half seasons. Yeah. And that's really too, like when it was its golden age too. Yeah. And I got in there at a good time. uh, And, you know, you're sitting there with, it was very intimidating, but, um, but found my sea legs and pitched some shows that they liked and sort of really started to click in and feel good about it. And I think that was a phase of my life 
when I started to really feel like I'm doing improv, I'm writing on The Simpsons, I'm building up the nerve to, you know, and then uh, that's when this whole craziness of late night rears its head. And uh, I mean, that's such an what's the, What's the first whiff of that you get? First whiff of that I get is that um, Lorne Michaels wants to talk to me and he was interested in having me. They had put him in charge of trying to find the person to replace Letterman. And I, at first, and so he was thinking of me as like the, you know, head writer slash producer. Yeah. You know, the, the sort of the, the, the Tina Fey on 30 Rock, maybe, or whatever, who puts right, the whole right. show together. And I, I was sort of thinking, well, I'm intrigued, and I idolized Late Night as a format. I was intrigued, and I had a few meetings with Lauren, and then I said, you know what, I, I'm very instinctual, and I just was like, no, I, I can't, I can't do it. I don't, I don't want to be that person, you know? And I was very uncomfortable. I'd never wanted to be a producer, like I know yeah. that I've have producer titles occasionally, but to this day, and you I, are a producer. I mean, you and I are both producers of the yes. show. Yeah, know, but, but but yeah, but it's I don't. I, I just the idea of like I don't want to make phone call. I don't want to have a phone call sheet. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, yeah, yeah. There's all this stuff that they're supposed to do, and I I was like, no, I want to be the person who plays the game. I don't want to be. Yeah. So I now, um, was it was that it too? Is that you didn't want to be the person servicing? And be in proximity to what you really kind of want. Yeah, I think, but I couldn't. I, I mean, it's hard to couldn't verbalize. Uh, it yeah, or, I couldn't yeah. verbalize that. And also, at the time, for me to have said, "No, I'd much rather host this show," would have been insane because that was an insane idea. Um, given you know um, the idea that they would hire an experienced stand-up comic, so I back out. And I immediately feel better. I mean, I was getting like hives and stuff and I backed out and then immediately I'm. How long, wife, how long are you mulling it over? Uh, it wasn't that long. I don't think, I think I was mulling it over for a few weeks and then got out. And then there was like at least five weeks of, or more of just, I'm out, you know, I'm, they're going to go ahead and do this and I um, don't have to be the one who has to worry about how do you replace David Letterman. And I remember telling a friend, I'm glad I'm out because there's no way to replace. <laughs> You're yeah, never yeah. going to find anybody to replace David Letterman. Right. Like, that's that a fool's errand. Yeah, I really did say that. And yeah. I think, you know, that's probably, I mean, there was an email then, but I wish there was because I would, God damn it. I'd have an email where I said, no, it's, I don't want anything to do with this because you can't replace David Letterman. No one can. And then yeah. uh, uh, cut to Lauren calling me back after a while. And I guess they had looked at a bunch of different stand-ups and it wasn't sitting right with Lauren. And he pitched, he said, how would you feel about auditioning? And then something in me was like, well, why wouldn't you audition? And I like, why not just audition? What's the worst that could happen? You won't get it. But what's the, so I did. Did you uh, ever put an idea in his mind that you would like to be the host or did I he did say not. it first? He said, he said it first. And I, I mean, I, later on, I had people say, you know, oh, did you, you Machiavellian genius. And I was like, uh, I'd love to take credit for that. Um, 
And, but I, I mean, first of all, where it's now, was it 28 years ago now? So I think it's 28 mm, years. Yeah. 27, 28, 27, like 27 years ago. I'd love to be able to think that I like LBJ somehow figured it all out. Uh, but I honestly, I think I honestly did feel like they were going to, I remember hearing that they were going to get Gary Shandling and thinking, well, that's it. You know, like they're going to get Gary Shandling, who at the time with uh, it's Gary Shandling show. And, and, and then he had come out with, he had just his, uh, um, why am I blanking on this? His famous Larry, Sanders. Larry, Larry Sanders yeah. was killing it. And so I just thought, well, yeah, that would be if, if he wants the job, he'll do it. So, so when Lauren called me up, I remember having some trepidation, but then thinking, oh, I'll do it. I'll, I'll audition for it. And I auditioned for it and immediately loved <laughs> the audition was in the tonight show set when everyone was gone. And, uh, yeah, with Jason Alexander and Mimi Rogers. Yeah. And it was very funny. It was, yeah, it, it's, a, you know, I, mean, you, I think it is. It does it exist like yeah. out in the world. Yeah. We put it up online, but you know, one of the things that was, I think made it funny was I was so loose yeah. And I don't know why I was that loose, but I was loose in a way that I wasn't again for a year on the late night show. <laughs> I just was loose because I, I, you know, it's, it's one of the frustrating things about this is, uh, is that a comedy is so mercurial and so hard to, it's like this superpower, but it's not always there when you need it. You can't mm-hmm. just say Shazam and it's there. It's there yeah. sometimes. And sometimes when you need it the most, it's not there. Yeah. And I find that to be maddening. And you learn all these tricks to compensate. You learn all these over the years and thousands and thousands of hours of doing this. I've learned all the different ways to be able to compensate for the superpower didn't show up. But it's still, it's there sometimes and it's not there sometimes. Yeah. And when it's there everything's easy and yep. joyous. And when it's not, you're relying on muscle memory, this, that, and people will still say, oh, that was a good show afterwards, but you know, no, it wasn't, it wasn't, there was no um, pixie dust in the air. There was not that yeah. special thing. So that's why I think the audition went so well. And that that's around the time you and I meet because then yeah. we have, I mean, you think about it now, we had no time to put the show together. Yeah. I knew nothing. I had, Robert Smigel and I had these ideas, very strong, sort of almost religious ideas about what the show should be. We both loved silliness. We both, we could have talked for hours then and now about, well, Letterman is the answer to Carson, so it's irony. We're going to be post-irony. Post-irony is, you know... Uh, um, silliness. It's going to be sort of like a Pee Wee's Playhouse, but it's also going to have uh, a subversive this, and it's going to include puppets and animation. Uh, I won't wink at the audience and tell them we all know this character is false. Uh, I will, if a sketch calls for me to break down in tears, I'll break down in tears, like the whole thing. Yeah. But I want it to look like a 60s talk show, which is why... Yeah. We tried so hard to make it look kind of square, 
But then, um, and I was square looking and you and I looked like kids that were dressing up like Johnny and Ed, but we weren't, you know, so. Well, and also too, like I remember uh, Jon Stewart was doing a talk show on Comedy Central pre-Daily Show and was wearing like a leather jacket and a t-shirt and stuff like that. And yeah, I, yeah. you know, and I think that that was kind of expected of us at the time that we're, cause we're young and we're supposed to look, and we just were like, no, we'll look like idiots. And I do. And yeah. I, you know, yeah, because it, also, you know, I've told this to people since then, if you want to do something really revolutionary, sometimes it needs to look the way in is to look acceptable, but in a, in a way, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I, I know uh, I'm much more of a Beatles fan than you are, but like the Beatles and, and not to compare anything like that in that way, but just like they, they you're put saying on, you're more important and more popular than Jesus Christ. That's what yeah, you're saying. There you go. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what I'm saying is they did a lot to make the pill go down easy. And then, she, <laughs> you know what I mean? I just like, they looked like, they dressed in these Edwardian suits and yeah, they had long hair, but they had Edwardian suits and beetle boots and they bowed after each song. And you're like, they did all, they did that shit. And I remember in the beginning thinking, yeah, it, I really want it to look like, uh, all, I have all the classic tropes there. Yeah, classic. Classic. And then be totally insane. Like I want it to, you know, it's in and and uh, and really fuck with your mind in some ways. And I think that that's the thing I was really proud of is I would yeah, say it wasn't there wasn't detachment. No, because that's really what Dave had been kind of about. Yeah, he was always a little bit outside of and above right. a lot of what he did. And it was very funny, you know, I, I, and incredibly formative for, for me just yeah. in personally but i think a lot of people in comedy our age but yeah but I, that was like that was kind of and it also wasn't just wasn't our thing you know yeah it was so nice because you know we came out we did the show and there was of course uh people you know a lot of hate and a lot of just like we're gonna get canceled and i mean i i think that however long i live uh, I would have lived three years longer <laughs> if I hadn't gone through that. Like, whatever my expiration date is, it was accelerated by three years because of this year and a half or two years of just absolute uh, misery. But I always remember the show was fun, and that was the escape. I could feel like, wait, we did that thing, and the crowd laughed, and it all seemed to go really well. And then I would read horrible, you know... Um, headlines conan worst person ever yeah. you know america wishes he would die and i would think that's interesting because the show I made so much money by planting <laughs> this story says blandy slicker <laughs> ace says reporter an, an insider yeah insider mustachioed insider uh yeah i don't know so i uh i think that what's so nice now this is another thing about getting older is there are all these really funny people who blow me away with their talent, whether it's a Bill Hader or a Mulaney or a Nick Kroll, or the list goes on and on and on. And I talk to them now and they're like, oh yeah, that was the show. You're, you're, you guys, I used to watch that when I was a kid. And that was, 
the show made us laugh so hard. And I was thinking, why couldn't I have known? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I just, I just wish, I wish that I could have had like one night, like Scrooge, where these ghosts came to me and said, look, this sucks right now. And you're getting hit from every angle, but these are the ghosts of the superstars of the future. And they're telling you, they really like what you're doing and yeah. it's influencing them. And I yeah. would say, okay, thank you. Ghost of, you know, mysterious person. Ghost uh, of Tina Fey. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, was... I, that, that to me is one of the, I mean, one of the truly special things about it is that people that were like me looked at our show the way that I looked at the shows that I looked, yeah, looked yeah. at and, and looked to and was affected by and didn't sit there and think like, I'm going to be a comedian, but definitely soaked that shit up and was like, okay, I see what they're doing here, you know, yeah. and started to sort of think about comedy and yeah. think about what they were doing. Yeah. And, you know, no, I, um, I, 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 you know, I would say, I mean, uh, that has been, that's all, that's really all I wanted. Everything else is gravy, but yeah. all I wanted was to do that. And I still find nuggets like that. When, when you, if you talk to someone and they say, yeah, I was watched it when I was in high school or I, I was depressed and I used to watch the show and it make me feel better. I, whenever I walk away from those and I walk away quickly, uh, <laughs> no, I, I yeah, feel like, I mean, you know, yeah. Ugh, who wants people? Know, exactly. Uh, how is this making me money? Um, mm -hmm. no, whenever I get a moment like that, I truly am, uh, it, it is nutrition for me. And I just yeah. think that's really all I wanted out of the whole thing. And, you know, which makes, uh, you know, where we are now. So interesting. Cause people, I don't know about you, but I get a lot of people saying, Oh, so when do you think, you know, you'll end that people have a, I don't think they're being, they're not being malicious, but they just, it gets talked about so much like the longest serving hosts, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so uh, you can always detect, especially if you're me, a hint of like, so shouldn't you be leaving now? Yeah. Maybe it's time you left the party. You got right. here early and you've been here the longest. And so Johnny liked tennis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you could marry again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I think I think, uh, you know, the thing I just go by is I like to make stuff and yeah. it's fun to make stuff. And sometimes it's also very annoying to make have to make stuff. Right. But um you know, if you're I was, having fun, you know, and it's like, yeah, you got to do something, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. You it's know? it's so funny at a certain point, you know, I mean, the early years of the show, 93, 94, 95, 96 was such a, such a must, must, must survive yeah. kind of, kind of like running through the woods, being chased by hounds and just dodging and, you know, getting a piece of your arm torn off. But grabbing a branch and wrapping it while you're running it just and then it's so funny to be like now it's like well, you gotta do something and it's kind of <laughs> true like the stakes aren't the same yeah and it's a different show and i mean yeah. we have built up a business and you know now the uh, late night was it 16 years that it went on or 
I think it was 16 and a half. 16 and a half. Yeah, and Dave, what, Dave did late night for 11. Yeah. And we did it for 16, I think. And at what point in that do you start thinking about trading up to The Tonight Show? Well, I think it started to be questions about, well, you know, there have been questions like in the press and stuff about where do you go next? And Conan's in a commodity and this show is really hot. And then we get, uh, I think it was when Fox came to me and I, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to be hazy on all this, but I think it was Fox, Peter Chernin at Fox coming to me and saying that they really would want me to come and make it worth your while. Yeah. And do a show there. And he's such a, that's one of the smartest people I've met in all of show business, in all, not even just show business. He's just this incredibly intelligent guy, Peter Chernin. And, and, I, and I'm saying that just because he, he was right about everything he said. He, he told, pretty much told me how everything would lay out and lay at night. And <laughs> I listened and I went, yeah, you're probably right, but I think I'm going to stick it out here. And my biggest reason for wanting to stick it out at NBC was my body of work. I really had seen what happened to Dave when he switched networks. And I thought, I want the idea that my network would hate me and that I wouldn't have access to 16 and a half years of all this stuff we made. Yeah. That was my nightmare. So the great irony is that I stayed with NBC <laughs> because I thought I want to stay connected to all this stuff. And then they were interested in having me uh, move on up and make the show younger and uh, make the demographic younger. So I, I did. Uh, I said, okay. And it was like, okay, will you do that in five years? And I remember thinking, wow, that's a long, okay. All right. So, and then we all know how that played out. So, you know, there's plenty of footage of that crash. Yeah. But, uh, um, but I mean, when they, when that idea came to you of like doing the tonight show, had it been something that had been on your mind? I yeah, mean, I think it had. Well, first of all, the first couple of years of late night, obviously not. It was just like if I can. Right. Keep no, the, of course. If I right. can keep the late night show. But I think over time thinking, yeah, when you're on at 1230 for a really long time, for a decade and a half, you're thinking, yeah, being on at 1130 would be it'd be nice. You know, yeah. be, and Letterman had set that precedent. Yeah. Of, yeah. So, I mean, I'm going to say, yeah, that had. and. I think I also had this probably mistaken notion of, you know, I grew up watching Johnny, so I could, wouldn't it be great to make, you know, do that show and do it in this certain way that I, I think would be like a great, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I think I had aspirations of doing it in a way that we're probably, or, you know, thinking rightly or wrongly that, Oh, I could, you know, uh, make the show um, more like that show that I grew up watching, which I think is probably mistaken. Yeah. You know, Um, if you could like. If you could go back and keep the Tonight Show, would you like if you if there was some sort of magical lever that could be pulled? I wouldn't change a thing. Okay. about any of it. And I, and I, I really mean that. And I think people sometimes say, really? You know, and I think, no, I, I think, 
I think the everything that happened when that went down was excruciating, but also in some ways magical and beautiful, like the whole movement that came rose up out of it. And the, I think it, it, the tour was really meaningful to me. And I think moving over to TBS and being able to do things exactly the way we want to do them. Yeah. And I, think I mean, that's, that, that's something that when people t- have talked to me about it, I'd say, that you know you own this show and it it wouldn't matter how long you were on the tonight show yeah you would have been an employee yeah and i think you know i I think at the end of the day there's again we i'm going to go back to you know rule and hell (laughs) and and that's not that's no slam against tbs but i think i have to do things the way i need to do them and i don't know if that was going to be possible in that other scenario. And, uh, I'm, it's funny because I'm very ambitious. I'm not going to lie about that. I am very ambitious, but also I can't compromise certain things for my ambition. And so that's a sticking point, you know? And I don't know if, uh, I'm sure that, you know, and and I, I do think the way everything happened was quite unusual and it's a very strange show business story. Yeah. But if you think about the fact that I got the late night show in the first place, that's completely unprecedented. And then what happened with the tonight show is completely unprecedented. (laughs) Like they don't anoint a seasoned tonight show replacement. Do you know what I mean? And then have that dissolve so quickly in such a weird way. And the person before the, that you replaced goes to 10 o'clock and the whole thing's a mess. I mean, yeah. I don't know. It, it, to quote a great man, Jeff Ross, it was what it was. You know, uh-huh. it is what it is and it was what it was. And so uh, I've had the whole Team Coco movement and the, um, the whole explosion of stuff that we've done on digital and the travel shows and the podcasts and all of it. I, don't see any of that happening yeah. in that other reality. And it, that's, that would make me sad. You know, do you think there's something good? I've, you know, we've never talked about it. like the, you know, there is kind of that, you know, it's the Colbert versus Fallon versus Kimmel. Do you think that it's good for us to be kind of like off to the side yes. of that a little bit? Yeah. I, I think, uh, I mean, we're old, you know, which I don't feel like we're old, but we are definitely in this, business we're the old ones you know well you're you're old i'm as you know you're older than me andy look at wikipedia it's been changed this morning oh my god i'm 40 i'm 44 yeah you don't pay for all those surgeries if it doesn't turn back the clock um yeah no i i 100 (laughs) i couldn't agree more i think there's a natural thing uh sometimes i think the media if you look at them, there are individual exceptions, but if you look at the mass media, they like things simple. Yeah. And so what they like is a clash of the titans. They want Godzilla versus Mothra. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They, they, want, uh, they want two giants clashing. That's, they want um, Fraser Ali. That's what they want. Yeah. And so 
I've always thought that's great. And it works so well in sports. And it can even work in politics. It doesn't work in comedy, in my opinion. Yeah. And so when people are trying to just, you know, be like, who is going to beat, which funny person is going to beat the other funny person with their funny ray? It, it doesn't work. And yeah. so, of course, when there's much it's less. Be, it's beside the point. Yes. And so I always thought the whole, it's Leno versus Letterman, you know, and, and the only thing that they could do is come up with ratings. Who's ahead in the Nielsen's? And I was like, well, it's just who makes you laugh? Yeah. Who makes you laugh? Who did something that made you laugh tonight? Who's your cup of tea? Yeah. No, no. It's a battle to the death. It just I'm, serves. It serves the industry of talking about the show business industry. Right. It's creating content for the people that have to say, you know, uh, you know, Laurie Laughlin's got a new show. And then, you know, but they also love yeah. this whole notion of the late night wars. They yes. dined out but on it doesn't, that for but years. But it doesn't, it doesn't work. It, do, it, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And so I think, uh, you know, um, there was a piece I wrote for Entertainment Weekly when Dave... Brag much? <laughs> <laughs> Must be nice to get writing work. <laughs> I love bragging about an article that I, I think for I got no... Weekly. That, I, weekly that I got no money for. But that was probably only online. But uh, Dave, when Dave went off the air on CBS, I wrote this piece and I was just trying to make the point that this is what he meant. And then... I I was saying the whole late night wars and the whatever the the scandal and the it's all noise. What really meant something was what did it what it meant to me to be 15 16 years old and seeing this guy on TV who looked completely like nothing else I've seen on television and being this voice and this wit that's what counts. That's yeah. the only thing that counts. The rest yeah. of it is is I don't even you know, it's it's completely beside the point. So, yes, to be locked in some goofy and I, I mean, I think they've given up on it because there are just too many late night shows now. So they yeah, can't yeah. do there literally are so many late night shows now that when they do a late night roundup, there's like they <laughs> there's like 35 people in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, It really does. Well, so. and the ratings, too, are like so much lower. Like, what's yeah. a good rating now is a third of what a good, strong rating used to be. Yeah. In just our every- day. Yeah. Well, think- it is. It's just yeah, everybody's yeah. watching other things and right. on those video games. Oh, I hate those things. Yeah. Um, I think on any but- given night on the late night show, we were seen by as many people as see a Super Bowl now. That's a true story. Really? No. No. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, that doesn't sound right. Can't you tell my love's a growing? The main reason I had John here is like, uh, just to say like, well, what, what, what's in our future? What do you, do you have any kind of like game plan I don't. For, I, for I what know. goes forward, or you just well, no. I, I well, take you know, it I, as it comes. It, I think anybody. Uh, I mean, I don't. I'll, you know, we, I try and keep my podcast evergreen, but I think these days you have to accept and not mention dates or anything. But we are smack dab in the middle of this 
quarantine and this coronavirus. And anybody who makes a prediction on what they're going to do next in the midst of this is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I feel um, in a very healthy way, this has got me thinking, what am I doing today? What am yeah. I going to do today? And yeah. then, uh, and how is the world going to change? And, you know, who's, are these shows, I don't know when there's going to be an audience again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know when, you know, I'm so sick of that awful phrase, the new normal, but, you know, what is, what are things going to look like in two months, three months? Uh, and I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. So I know that we're doing this now, but I have absolutely no idea how this uh, pandemic is going to change what we do. I always know that people adapt and I know that we'll keep, I think, making or trying to make funny stuff. But I don't know what that's going to look like down the yeah. road or when it's going to. Is it ever going to go back to completely what it was before? I think a lot of us assume it will, but I don't know. Well, did, before the pandemic, did, what was your notion of what your future was going to be? I honestly didn't know. I think yeah. um, I think I probably could see the business of and here he is, Conan. Hi, everybody. Welcome. And then, you know, comedy bit, comedy bit. And let's sit down. Now, we've tried to change it a bunch just because I started to lose my mind. I, and I really yeah, started yeah. to think this business of. And then I come out and I'm in a suit and tie. And you're like, what? What are you doing? It's uh, and there's a desk and a microphone. And so we changed it up a bunch and we changed it to half an hour. And that was feeling a lot closer to something that felt like, yeah, this is more appropriate now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, this, yeah this, of course. But um, I honestly wasn't thinking that far ahead because I didn't know. I just didn't know how much this business is changing so quickly yeah. and streaming. And, you know, late night shows existed initially as time killers uh, at 11 o'clock. Yeah, cheap, what, cheap ways to get commercials on. Yes. And promote other things. That's the history of the late night show. That's the dirty history of the late night show is a, a, a cheap way to, you know, and now and now look, then they became these monstrosities, and not, not in a bad way, but they became these behemoths under Carson and then on into the 90s and 2000s. And we, you know, really got to live doing the late night show during the, this sort of big time era of these shows. But now when you think about it, when your local news is over, if you're even watching your local news, you have a choice. It's not like, well, you know, before I turn in, I'm going to see what's going on on the tonight show or the late late show or whatever. I mean, yeah, you can, you can do that or I'll see what, you know, Kimmel's up to or Conan or whatever. You can do that, but you can also watch anything that's ever been created in the history yeah. of the world. Yeah, yeah. Anything yeah. from exactly when from the beginning. Right. Director's cut. David right. Lean. Lawrence of Arabia. Right. So it's so or, you know, or it, things like, you know, 
Uzbeki TV. You know, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, can, yeah. you can find it all. It's it yeah. is pretty amazing. So I don't know. I wish I could tell you. I've never been more aware than during this, you know, time of COVID that. Uh, that. I'm it's about today. It's about yeah. today and it's about what are we doing today? And so I'm doing your podcast and then I'm shooting some stuff uh, for tonight's show. I mean, it's actually that we've got tonight's show all set. I know. Yeah. No, actually, I'm shooting the wraparounds, the, the intros for tonight's show. And then um, we're you, doing a bit. We're doing a bit. And then you did a really funny piece uh, uh, that I, I think is great where you're making uh, you take you're, you're going off of um, Stanley Tucci's St- bartending. Yeah. Stanley again. Tucci's bartending video went viral. So you <laughs> you did a thing of, well, I'll, I'll make cocktails out of what's left yeah. in the liquor cabinet, which is really funny. Uh, I, so I'm like, that's where I am is I'll do that. And then, um, I'll talk to Hank Azaria in about 45 minutes after that, you know, uh, for the show later this week. And then, uh, I'll, I'm really trying not to watch CNN because. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I can't. It's just the same thing over and over. Yeah, and it's, it's again, it's, it's needing to talk about something when we don't have enough information. Still, yeah. well, now, do you think do you think much about a day when you're not doing a daily show, like about you know, like a, yeah. a future time when yeah. you don't do that anymore, and, and yeah. what your life looks like? Um, I don't know. I've always dreamed of one day living in a city like London for a year. Mm-hmm. I've always wanted to do that. So sometime I'd like to do that. I'd like to write a book at some point uh, about my, you know, I want to create a religion, basically. It'll be my sure, Dianetics. Sure, sure, sure. Um, right, right, right. Have a lot of acolytes. No, I've always right. thought. Get, your, get some celestial wives. If I could get it together, I'd like to write a book about some of what I've seen and witnessed and have it be a good one of those. Yeah, I just it's such a mammoth undertaking, but I'd like to do that someday. I really love, I, I, you know, I don't know what your experience is, but I really love doing the podcast because this is such a nice way to talk to people and to use a much different lens, you know, to use a much different lens than the lens of, all right, that was a great four minutes. You got some good laughs. Let's go to commercial. Come back and do another four minutes and then I'll get rid of you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh I'm just saying it's time people had podcasts. <laughs> they do. They oh, really, truly do. I really Everyone didn't. has one. I thought it was just me and you. That bust of Roosevelt behind you has one. It's all, it's all about Josie and the Pussycats. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, what, I mean, what's the point of it all? That's, you know, that's, you know, in this podcast, we kind of gets to the what you've learned part. And I mean, what, what, like it's what, what you is, do what now. Some, it's what you do s- now. I will tell you this. It's what you do now. It's uh, it is. There's no big mystery to it. It is. Uh, I don't believe in legacy. I don't believe in. Uh, I, I mean, whatever I used to believe about any of that stuff. And what will my place be in the pantheon? It's not about that. It's about. Did you behave well? Did you. um you know, day in and day out, try to do good work. 
did you, um, you know, try to enjoy things as, as best you could? Did you make try- lives better for people, you know, lives I don't better know. for the people? Yeah, around just you. try yeah. to pay it forward a little bit and, yeah. and also have humility about the whole thing. You know, just I, I, I uh, really have humility. Don't think you're, don't think that you're, uh, I don't know. I think I have, I, I, I don't know, may not always come across, but I do have real empathy for people. And I like to joke around a lot that I don't have empathy or play the guy who's like out of touch. But uh, I, I, I do empathize with other people. And I realize in a bunch of ways I've been lucky. So I don't want to get a big head about it, you know, and just sort of uh, play it close to the bone. Yeah. But I don't know what it's all about. I just know that my grave will be a monument. It will make the pyramids look small. And people will know my name for millions of years. As the overcompensator. <laughs> Conan, the overcompensator. <laughs> and they will come and witness my massive, <laughs> giant phallic tomb. <laughs> All right. Well, that's enough of this. Uh, All right, thank well, this you for doing fun. this. Yeah. yeah. I love you very much. And thank I love you, you for too. taking the time. Well, you know what? And now we have to shoot more stuff. I know? know. Yeah, I'll see you in like six minutes, I think. Yeah, yeah. We'll do, we'll, uh, but yeah, you know, this is the thing is that I always wanted to do this kind of crazy thing. I always had a dream of doing this thing, um, making something and having my band of people. And I'm, I don't know why you and I met in 93. I don't know. I mean, I know specifically how it happened. Yeah. But you were the perfect person at the perfect time. Yeah. And you compliment me. Uh, and I don't mean compliment because you've never complimented me, but you compliment me. You you uh, you you uh, are such a great uh, um, you are such a great partner in comedy and in and you're very honest. And I think the fact that I have a lot of affection when I look when these things pop up on my phone and I see you and I doing something in 1995 or, you know, we're shooting some remote and we're dressed literally like children. Yeah. Uh, I'm just, I'm really grateful. I'm like, God bless that Andy. He, he was there. Uh, he was there and he saved the day. So, well, thanks. I mean, listen, I, 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 I definitely, I, I'm a 100% in agreement with you that we do. We work well together yeah. and both on and off camera. And, and I mean, and th- you know, this show has given me the opportunity to kind of, find my place in the in the comedy world and and i mean and i you know i went off and did sitcoms and stuff and i came back just because i love the immediacy of it yeah you know i love the fact that we get to just put shit on tv today you know and not have to sit and wait for somebody to come back from you know maui and and judge what i've written you know that i've been sitting right for three weeks on now we have a kooky little clubhouse but we can pull up the the rope ladder and not let anybody else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's great. All right. All right. Well, this is actually, this is the, actually uh, the end of my s- podcast season. You're wow. my big season closer. Mm. So I do want to say to that. the, 
Oh, that's all right. No, no. I, I mean, I designed it that way. Oh, good. Uh, I do want to say to the people uh, out there, the people, the people, as Sybil would say, uh, thank you so much for listening to this show. And it, uh, I've gotten nothing but wonderful feedback, and it really is meaningful to me, all the nice things that people say about this show. And I'm glad that it means something to the people that listen to it. And I'm sure I'll be coming back to you soon with more of them. So thank you, Conan. Thank you, listeners. And we are out. Bye. I've got a big, big love for you. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco and Earwolf production. It's produced by me, Kevin Bartelt, executive produced by Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Chris Bannon and Colin Anderson at Earwolf. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, associate produced by Jen Samples and Galit Sahayek, and engineered by Will Becton. And if you haven't already, make sure to rate and review The Three Questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. 